Thanks for your company. Welcome to LifeWords Q&A. It is our weekly chat with David Ray about all things uh, life and faith. And uh, they're your questions, so please email us if you've got something burning on your mind. We may have asked it and answered it already, but it doesn't hurt to send it anyway. The email address, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. And uh, g'day, David. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. Our first question today, uh, David, is people say salvation is all God's work, but where does that leave our faith? Well, it's a little bit misleading to say salvation's all God's work. It's probably a little bit of an overstatement, but let, let me try and clarify it with an illustration. Just imagine a person who's in deep water drowning. They can't swim and uh, they're going to drown. Now, someone throws them a life belt and uh, they grab it and they're saved from drowning. Now, uh, uh, the rescuer and the drowning person each had a part to play. You see, if the drowning person hadn't taken hold of that life belt, then they would have drowned. I mean, the rescuer was doing a lot of good work and threw the life belt in, did all the right things. But unless the drowning person takes hold of the life belt, they're going to drown. So the drowning person has to respond to that offer of rescue if the rescue is going to be effective. Then again, if the rescuer hadn't thrown the life belt, the person would drown anyway. So if you put it in more biblical theological terms, our faith is necessary. But our faith is a response to God's prior grace. And the grace I'm talking about here is his offer of rescue and salvation through trust in Jesus. So unless God had acted first and foremost to send Jesus to die for our sins and to offer us salvation... Um, faith is useless. I mean, what's the use of faith unless there's an object? You've got to have an object. God's grace expressed in Jesus is the object. And so that's primary. So we have to say God's role in salvation is absolutely primary because if he hadn't done anything, well, we can't do anything because all our faith is a response to something he's done. But it's not to say that um, our faith doesn't matter, that it's all God's work. It's not all God's work, we have to actually respond. So no matter how much faith we might have, it's useless without something to have faith in. Then again, no matter how merciful God is to us, unless we accept by faith that that mercy is offered, we're lost. So God takes initiative, but we have to respond. So uh, I guess the traditional understanding uh, is that we actually have to respond to God's offer. Yes, we have to respond to God's offer. And and you could argue that God's offer is the most important thing there because, uh, yes, we, we have to respond to something. The offer comes first. Our faith doesn't come first. We can't save ourselves. But then again, um, God doesn't force us to have faith. Um, we have to actually reach out and take hold of the offer of salvation. Thanks, David. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A. It is our weekly chat about life and faith. Send us your question, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. That's lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. You can always subscribe and receive this in uh, your iTunes account each week. Just go to uh, LifeWords Q&A in the iTunes store, or you can always download it at the Hope website. Our second question, David, is can you explain what the Apocrypha is? Is it in, It's in some Bibles, but not others. Yeah, look, the, the Apocrypha is a group of, uh, I think, 12 books. Um, they were written in the time before Jesus, but after the events of the Old Testament. So they record events, what we call between the Testaments. The Old Testament history books finish at a certain point and the Apocrypha, as it were, takes over. And then we have the events of the New Testament. Now, 
In the early church times, there were two versions of the Old Testament. Uh, One was a Hebrew version, one was a Greek version. And for various reasons, the Greek version had these uh, 12 books of the Apocrypha in them. So if you picked up a copy of the Greek Old Testament, they had what we call the Apocrypha in them. Picked up a Hebrew version... They didn't have them. So what happened, because there was such discrepancy between those versions of the Old Testament, some branches of the church seemed to embrace the Apocrypha and said, well, they're part of the Word of God. Other churches, um, other church traditions didn't. Now, in very general terms, the Roman Catholic Church has tended to see the Apocrypha as having authority within the uh, Bible. The Protestants do not. Now, the Protestants don't rubbish the Apocrypha. They don't say, oh, it's all a load of rubbish and heresy. They're not saying that. They regard them as conveying some useful and wise information. And certainly they're interesting, recording the history of that era. Um, But they're not considered to be part of what we call the inspired word of God that's been handed down. So, So David, um, is it about three or four hundred years between the Old Testament and where the New Testament picks up? Yeah, depending on the, 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 the sort of scholars you talk to, yes, roughly roughly that. It was the time of the, the Greek Empire's domination of that uh, region. When when we pick it up, the history in the New Testament um, history era, uh, the Romans, of course, were the power. Um, back in the Old Testament days, there were the Babylonians, the Persians, and so on and so on. But in the intertestamental period, between the Testaments, it was the Greek Empire uh, that was basically dominant there. And that's what the Apocrypha tells you about. And, and some of the books were... Um, Tobit, um, one and two Maccabees, um, uh, Syrac, I think it is, Bell and the Dragon. Uh, so there were quite a few books that were uh, got rather strange titles we're not familiar with. But they, they're all interesting in terms of their reflection of the history of that era. And would they have been written by people that we may have heard of? Uh, maybe, yes. Sometimes you're not quite sure of actually who wrote those books. Uh, and I stress they're not books that are full of heresies and false doctrine but they're books that historically the early church, when it was sort of forming what really did constitute the inspired scriptures and what didn't, um, that they were regarded as rather more dubious. And, and they had some doubts, like they had some doubts about things like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and the Epistle of Barnabas. There are quite a few documents circulating around and the early church had to make a decision and said, hmm, what's in, what's out? And over a period of time, through prayerful reflection, through meeting together, circulating of these books, um, basically it came to be that uh, certain books are in, certain books are out. But as I say, with the Apocrypha, it was a little bit different because those books are still accepted as part of the inspired scriptures in some Christian traditions. So you talk about that, that there's this closed canon of books. Mm. So like way back when uh, the church uh, as a group over a series of years decided that these would be the uh, inspired word of God mm. and these other books are not uh, necessarily that, 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 well, they're not included. Are we at a point where that, that, that closed canon would ever be reviewed again? You, you, you think not. I mean, uh, people would argue, many Christians would argue, look, we don't want to add to the Word of God. I mean, few, a few bits of uh, fragments of manuscripts and so on have uh, emerged over years, and many people have got very excited about them and said, well, well, why can't we include this in the Bible now? But what I think most Christians tend to do is to say, look, the early church over this period of many, 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 many years, under the guidance of the Spirit, we do believe they made proper decisions about what was in and what was out, as it were, 
And uh, I think what, what most Christians would tend to say is, well, look, under the providence, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we do believe we have got the written scriptures as God wanted them to be because there doesn't seem to be any great consensus of opinion about accepting any of these other later documents. Um, you, you could argue hypothetically that God could sort of um, plonk another inspired book down as well. But it doesn't seem as though he's done it according to the wisdom of many Christians um, who've um, who've studied that. So we do have what we might call a closed canon. Mind you, that's a totally different um, issue that we're broaching here, but uh, that doesn't mean to say that because it's a closed canon that there cannot be fresh applications and understandings of Scripture. I mean, it's not the, the, the understanding we might have had um, 500 years ago might change. Uh, yeah, we wouldn't have a Christian book industry if that was the case. That's exactly right, yes. <laughs> You're listening to LifeWords Q&A. Uh, David Ray answers your questions. If you've got one, you can email us, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. Our final question is one of those tough ones, David. The Bible tells us to be joyful in hardship. Isn't that a bit unrealistic? Well, it is. It depends on how you understand joy. If you confuse joy and happiness, you've got a real problem. Uh, because no one in their right mind would tell someone in the middle of a terrible tragedy, uh, be happy. That's just silly. That's just pie-in-the-sky optimism. No, the Bible's much more realistic than that. Let me just try and contrast joy and happiness. Happiness is an emotional reaction to a favourable circumstance. Uh, Joy is glad confidence in God's goodness. You know, I go, um, I go away for a holiday up the coast, I'm happy. The car breaks down, I'm unhappy. Uh, take it into a garage and it's fixed. I'm happy. I get the bill for the repair and I'm unhappy. So mm-hmm. happiness just goes up and down, up and down, up and down. Joy is more constant because it's linked not to my immediate circumstance, but the goodness of God. Joy is having a glad confidence that God is good, irrespective of whether my circumstances are good. So it's not unrealistic. It's unrealistic if it were to be based on circumstances, because they can be good or bad. But joy is based on the underlying goodness of God, irrespective of circumstances. So it is realistic. But we must understand, as Paul, I think, touched on in one of his letters to Corinthians, I think, he said, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And that gives us a key key to the fact that joy is not happiness. But I can be sorrowful, tears running down my cheeks, dreadfully upset at a circumstance. Joyful? Yes, because I believe that God is good in the midst of that and he is working good out of all this stuff that's not so good. Uh, And I guess a practical approach to this, Dave, uh, David, would be uh, unless... Well, yeah, I mean, if you were to give us one or two tips. About joy? Look, I, I mean, I'd like to say, I think I can say honestly, that my one of my great passions is to pursue joy, not, not so much happiness, but joy. And so it, it can be a bit elusive. But let me offer two uh, two ways, of, ways forward there, Andrew. One is joy, since it's linked to the confidence in the character of God, I need to know the character of God. And that, that, mm. that, that, that's, I, I get that not just from the Bible. I get it through the fellowship with other Christians and through my church worship and all this sort of thing. Uh, but so I need to be immersed in the character of God. I need to know the character of God well so that when circumstances throw me off course, as it were, I can come back to that solid anchorage in God's goodness. The second approach to joy that I found very helpful is to focus on gratitude. Even though things might be going badly, and we're not denying that things are going badly, we're realistic, we also say, but God, I'm thankful, not that you are just simply with me in these circumstances, but I want to look for the good 
um, in the midst of these bad circumstances. Uh, I might I, I might be in hospital, lying in bed, very uncomfortable, and I'm not very thankful for that at all. I'm unhappy, but at the same time, I say, but wait a minute, I'm getting very good care here. Uh, or, or thank you for that person who rang me up, or, or whatever, whatever. So in other words, um, gratitude, thankfulness, is 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 a way of, of, of actually getting us ourselves in touch with the um, underlying goodness of God. I've, I've just got a phrase in my mind here that I think a writer called Eugene Peterson used years ago. He said, we are to, in the midst of the desert, we are to look for the tiny green shoots of God's grace in the midst of the desert. So don't deny that you might be in the desert you might be unhappy to be there but look for the little green shoots of grace in other words in the midst of all your unhappy circumstances look for the signs that God is still there with you and look for things for which you can be thankful and that I think opens us up to 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 joy because it opens us up to what God is really doing beneath the surface thanks David and we'll join you next time when we answer another three questions of yours. If you would like to add to the list of questions, please do. Don't hold back. LifeWords at hopemedia.com.au. Subscribe to the LifeWords podcast through the iTunes store, or you can download it at hope1032.com.au. Till next time, thank you. <laughs>